Ephesians 6 verse 12 says this, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's why you need the armor of God, Paul tells the Ephesians. Why? Because we have a battle against what he uses a list of words, rulers, authorities, uh, powers of the present darkness, the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That refers to the unseen, the, um, the dark arts, if you want to call them that. It's dark, and they have these crafty, wily ways of getting to us. In tonight's passage, in Numbers, we have an Old Testament equivalent to what we would call spiritual warfare. And we're going to see God as the defender of Israel. He's the one who defends his people against Satan, his schemes, and his dark arts. So, as we go into this, uh, I found it interesting as I was thinking about it, because here you have this um, sorcerer named Balaam. He's a sorcerer. He's a wizard. He's, he's a guy that uses spells to manipulate the world and people. Some sort of crazy prophet, if you want to think of him that way. This guy is scary. And he's hired to come and curse Israel. And so we're faced with this uncomfortable notion that the Bible has magic in it. Right? And sometimes we're like, uh, mm, we don't do that. But just bear with me. He's going to use magic. But then we have Jesus who comes and he does miracles. Jesus performs miracles. Um, now, if I told you that Jesus performed magic when he rose the dead, or opened the eyes of the blind, or caused the lame to walk, some of us would have a big problem calling that magic. Some of us would say, I don't know, miracle, magic, what's the difference? They're both powers. I would say that we just have different ways of defining words. But here's what I do see, uh, is that the Bible tends to use the word magic when referring to using another's power on behalf of someone else. Um, and miracle refers to using inherent power. Now, that's, that's a technical, I, you can do a word study or whatever, but honestly, no, that's not, that's not it either. What it comes down to is this. In the Bible, magic, when it's condemned, what it is, is manipulation. The magic the Bible condemns is manipulation. It's where you change, alter, or bend someone or something in order to serve your purpose. And if you're using the power that you have to bend and change something for your purpose. Now, we know people who are manipulative, You may have seen them or you've experienced them. They have this way of twisting your life, twisting your words, twisting your intentions to make you feel like the one who owes them something. Now, I'm not going to say that's hocus pocus and magic. That's just an ordinary fellow using their power. But in this sense, that's the kind of power the Bible would condemn. It is when you're using your stance, your authority, your power to bend someone else's will towards yours. This is what God condemns. Miracles, on the other hand, are the opposite. We never see Jesus using his power in order to bend people toward his purposes. Everything Jesus does is about serving the other. 
his power about making them better. And, and when he could have used his power when you would have thought he would have used it for himself on the cross, he's, he, he could have called down legions of angels to rescue him, but he doesn't. He doesn't use his power in order to get his way. He uses his power in order to help other people find what they need most. And that, in a nutshell, is what I would say is the difference when we come to passages like this, when the Bible talks about magic and it talks about miracles, is that the Bible condemns a magic that says, use your power to bend the universe toward your purposes and your will. And we're going to see a guy who does that in this passage. So, um, manipulation. You may remember in Acts chapter 7, there's this guy named Simon. Now, the church had moved on towards Samaria, from Jerusalem to Samaria, and there uh, a lot of people begin to respond to the gospel. And then it's uh, Peter and John are sent to Samaria to go and give them the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit is given to the people in Samaria, Simon, we're told he's a sorcerer, he's a magician, and the people marveled at his power. He had everybody in awe over what he can do. All of them just at the edge of his fingertips and his words. And Simon sees the Holy Spirit being given and miracles and signs being performed. And he thinks, oh, now there's a power I don't have. And so he offers money to the apostles for this gift to give the Holy Spirit to people. And you can see what Simon is thinking. He's still thinking in terms of magic. I want that power so that I can bend the, the devotion and the loyalty and the adoration of all the people around me toward myself so that I can continue to build my empire in the eyes of the Samaritans. That's what Simon's thinking. And so, of course, the apostles look at him and say, go to hell, Simon, in a nutshell, is what they tell him. You perish with your money. You think you can buy this. It's not something that you can grasp own so that you can manipulate the Holy Spirit and get everyone to love you. That's not how this works. So we're going to see Balaam learns this lesson. So shall we break in? Let's do it. Numbers chapter 22. So what has happened up to this point is Israel has now began to... Uh, well, neighbors don't like that they're moving closer to the promised land, so they start to battle against them, and Israel's beginning to win battles. And everyone's like, oh dear, here they come. So the Moabites are the most terrified, and Balak is their king. Then the people of Israel set out and camped in the plains of Moab, beyond the Jordan at Jericho. They are on the threshold of the promised land. They are right there. And Balak... The son of Zippor saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites, whom they had recently conquered. And Moab was in great dread of the people because they were many. Moab was overcome with fear of the people of Israel. And Moab said to the elders of Midian, This horde will now lick up all that is around us as the auk licks up the grass of the field. So Balak, the king the son of Zippor, who was king of Moab at that time, sent messengers to Balaam, the son of Beor at Pethor, who, which is near the river in the land of the people of Ammah, to call him, saying, Behold, a people has come up out of Egypt. They cover the face of the earth, and they are dwelling opposite me. Come now, please curse this people for me, since they are too mighty for me. Perhaps I shall be able to defeat them and drive them from the land, for I know that whom you bless is blessed, and he whom you curse is cursed. 
So the elders of Moab and the elders of Midian departed with the fees for divination, for magic, in their hand. And they came to Balaam and gave him Balak's message. And he said to them, Lodge here tonight, and I'll bring back word to you as the Lord speaks to me. So the priests of Moab stayed with Balaam, and God came to Balaam and said, Who are these men with you? And Balaam said to God, Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, has sent to me, saying, Behold, a people, yeah, yeah, go curse them. God, in verse 12, said to Balaam, You shall not go with them. You shall not curse the people, for they are blessed. So Balaam rose in the morning and said to the princes of Balak, Go to your own land, for the Lord has refused to let me go with you. So the princes of Moab rose and went to Balak and said, Balaam refuses to come with us. Balak, you can imagine how angry he is at this. He's like, I will pay ever I can get to get Balaam here. And you seriously guys, you guys seriously mean that you return without him? So he ups the ante. He says, okay, no more losers going to get Balaam. I'm sending my best, the best princes of my kingdom with the best treasures I have. So in verse 13, 15, this is key for what we'll hear about later on this passage. Once again, Balak sent princes, princes more in number and more honorable than these. And they came to Balaam and said to him, thus says Balak, so they're inviting him to come curse once again. Verse 18, but Balaam answered and said to the servants of Balak, though Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I could not go beyond the command of the Lord God to do less or more. <sighs> you two stay here tonight that I may know what the Lord will say to me. And God came to Balaam at night and said to him, if the men have come to call you, rise, go with them, but only do what I tell you. So Balaam rose in the morning, saddled his donkey, and went with the princes of Moab. Okay. So forever and ever, until I had to prepare for this message, I, I found this passage so confusing. God's like, don't go. Oh, they up the ante. Well, go. Totally. Why not? Money's the whole thing. Like, why, why does God change his mind? Why does God send Balaam to go now? It gets even more interesting as we go on in verse 22. Because God just told him to go. And then you read verse 22 and you're like, what is going on? But God's anger was kindled <laughs> because he went. And the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way as his adversary. Okay, God said, go, go, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, I changed my mind. You can go. But then God's angry that he's going. Didn't he just tell him to go? How can you please this God? What is the deal with this? That's... You wonder why God is doing this. So, in the middle of verse 22, we see, Now, Balaam was riding on a donkey, and his two servants were with him. And don't forget, he's with the highest nobility of Moab, the most important people of the kingdom he's going to. They're with him. People you don't want to look like a fool in front of. And the donkey, 23 saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with a, with a drawn sword in his hand. And the donkey turned aside out of the road and went into the field. And Balaam struck the donkey to turn her into the road. Now, you can imagine the humiliation here. 
You're with nobility. They have horses that are decorated in gems and gold with bridles that are more expensive than your uh, car probably. And they're riding together. And he can't even keep his donkey on the road. I, I'm just pissed off. What are you doing, donkey? He starts beating it. Like He's, he's angry because he's embarrassed. So he gets back on the road. <laughs> I'm good now. 24. Then the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow path between the vineyards with a wall on either side. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she pushed against the wall and pressed Balaam's foot against the wall. So it's crushing his foot. Now he's getting his leg scraped and he's got to stop and beat his donkey. You are making a fool of me in front of these very important people. You behave now. Small bladder, sorry. So he gets back on the donkey and they continue going. 26. Then the angel of the Lord went ahead and stood in a narrow place where there was no way to turn either to the right or to the left. And the donkey, when he saw the angel of the Lord, she lay down under Balaam. Just full on give up. Your car dies. This is humiliating. And Balaam's anger was kindled and he struck the donkey with his staff. But then the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey and she said to Balaam, what have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? And Balaam doesn't miss a beat. I mean, he, he just keeps on talking like this is a normal occurrence for him because you have made a fool of me as he's saying this in front of the nobility. Yeah. Who looks like a fool? You're talking to a, what are you doing, Balaam? You're talking to your donkey. Because you have made a fool of me. I wish I had a sword in my hand, for then I would kill you. You just hear him screaming, the veins bulging from his neck and sweat starting to pour out from his forehead. And the donkey said to Balaam, Am I not your donkey on which you have ridden all your life to this day? Is it my habit to treat you this way? And Balaam says, No. So now he's getting common sense from a donkey. And the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in his way with his sword drawn in his hand. And he bowed down and fell on his face. Doesn't this sound familiar with Paul going to Damascus with important people to go get Christians? Here's Balaam going to go get God's people. He's with important people. And Paul feels like a fool talking to something nobody else can see and bowing down before something he thought didn't exist. And now here is Balaam looking like a fool, bowing down, talking. Who knows? I, I don't know if the princes can hear the donkey talking or not. Uh, either way, I would, I would think, who, who is this guy that Balak is hiring? Is he sure about him? I, I don't think that Yelp had very good reviews on him because I'm, people were lying or something. Um, so now his eyes are opened like Paul's were. And the angel of the Lord, 32, said to him, why would you, why have you struck your donkey these three times? Behold, I have come out to oppose you because your way is perverse before me. The donkey saw me and turned aside before me these three times. If she had not turned aside from me, surely just now I would have killed you and let her live. Then Balaam said to the angel of the Lord, I have sinned, for I did not know that you stood in the road against me. 
Now, therefore, if it is evil in your sight, I will turn back. And the angel of the Lord said to Balaam, go with these men, but speak only the word that I tell you. So Balaam went on with the princes of Balak. Don't go, Balaam. Don't go. Okay. Next entourage comes, a bigger one with more money. Okay, go. Okay. He's on the road. Mm. I'm unhappy about this. I'm going to kill Balaam. Balaam sees God's angel. Oh, sorry. Should I go back? No, no. Hey, you should go after all. Oh, this Four times. This is, this is quite a lot of changes in the decisions of God. When Balak heard that Balaam had come, this is 36, he went out to meet him at the city of Moab on the border formed by the Arnon at the extremity of the border. And Balak said to Balaam, did I not send to you? Did I not send to you to call you? Why did you not come to me? Am I not able to honor you? Balaam said to Balak, behold, I have come. Have I now my power Do I have now any power of my own to speak anything? The word that God puts in my mouth, that must I speak. So then they go together, they go up on a hill, and they make their offerings. Okay, so one of the things we need to see so far about Balaam is we've learned this. He has powers. He's well-revered. He's sent for. He loves honor. We see that. He already knows God told him not to go. But now people with more honor come. Ooh, My status can go up. And so he decides, and of course, the Lord tells him that he can, um, but that's what he gets him to say, maybe I should re-pray about this. Yeah, he loves honor. And Balak has been trying to lure him with honor. And look, look, didn't I tell you I can honor you? And so, yeah, Balaam is greedy for for glory, for gain, for um, honor. And in 23, now we're going to see the series of Balaam is going to try to curse God's people, but it's not going to work. And he's going to continue to look, well, like less than advertised. And Balaam said to Balak, um, build for me seven altars. So they build the altars. They sacrifice rams and bulls. This is all part of their uh, pagan ritual to get the, the powers of the universe to hear them as they're going to curse this people. And so Balaam, this, this crazy prophet, magician, wizard guy, he, he takes up his stand, verse 7, and Balaam took up his discourse and said, and so Balak's excited, right? He's like, oh, this is going to be good. Fire and brimstone. Let a meteorite come and crush Israel into the earth. Let them be forgotten forever. Let locusts eat their clothes and everything that they have to eat. And a, and a plague kill all their flock and their cattle and their babies come out stillborn. Like he's thinking like all these great curses. And instead Balaam says, from Aram, Balak has brought me the king of Moab from the eastern mountains Come curse Jacob for me and come denounce Israel. But how can I curse whom God has not cursed? How can I denounce whom the Lord has not denounced? For from the top of the crags I see him. From the hills I behold him. Behold a people dwelling alone and not counting itself among the nations. Who can count the dust of Jacob or number the fourth part of Israel? Let me die the death of the upright and let my end be like his. And Balak just turns his head and said to Balaam, 
What have you done to me? I took you to curse my enemies and behold, you have done nothing but bless them. And he answered and said, must I not take care to speak what the Lord puts in my mouth? So Balak is desperate. Okay, okay, fine. Come to another part of the mountain with me. Maybe if we see a smaller portion of the people, the curse will work. So they go through the whole ritual. Seven rams, seven bulls are offered again. And once again, Balaam goes up to the top and receives this oracle. 18, Balaam took up his discourse and said, Rise, Balak, and hear. Give ear to me, O son of Zippor. God is not a man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Really? It seemed like it a minute ago, didn't it? Go, don't go. Go, don't go. Okay, go. Something we don't know, but we're going to find that out soon. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? Behold, I receive a command to bless. He has blessed, and I cannot revoke it. He has not beheld misfortune in Jacob, nor has he seen trouble in Israel. The Lord their God is with them, and the shout of a king is among them. God brings them out of Egypt, and is for them like the horns of the wild ox. For there is no enchantment against Jacob, no divination against Israel. Isn't that great? He's confessing right here. I cannot conjure up any curse, any magical spell, any incantation, no magical formula, hocus pocus, whatever, bogus, that I can possibly make up that will ever get to Israel. There's no enchantment against Jacob, no divination against Israel. Now it shall be said of Jacob and Israel, what God has wrought. Behold a people, as a lioness it rises up, and as a lion it lifts itself. It does not lie down until it has devoured the prey and drunk the blood of the slain. Well, that's exactly what Balak wanted to hear. Basically, you guys are, you're gone. And so Balak is upset. He smacks his fist into his hand. He's like, I cannot believe this is happening. And out of desperation, they have one more attempt. And so this time, chapter 24, when Balaam saw that it pleased the Lord to bless Israel, he did not go as at other times to look for omens, but set his face toward the wilderness. And Balaam lifted up his eyes and saw Israel camping tribe by tribe. And the spirit of God came upon him. And he took up his discourse and said. So what I presume is happening is in the first two incantations, whatever you want to call them, he's trying to curse out of typical wizardry, out of typical paganism. He's trying to curse them. God is transforming the curse into a blessing on its way out. This third time is different. Balaam gets it. He gets that this isn't working. So he's now going to seek what God actually wants for this people. Not, I'm going to try to curse them. God's going to change the words. I'm going to actually see how does God want to bless them. And so now he's hearing, and it says that the spirit comes upon him. So now we have words from a true prophet, like the prophets of Israel. So you're going to hear that this is, um, yeah, this is, this is his best blessing yet. So he took up his discourse and said in verse 3, The oracle of Balaam, son of Beor, the oracle of the man whose eye is opened. See that? 
The oracle of him who hears the words of God and sees the vision of the Almighty falling down with his eyes uncovered. How lovely are your tents, O Jacob, your encampments, O Israel, like palm groves that stretch afar, like gardens beside a river, like aloes that the Lord has planted, like cedar trees beside the waters. Here he's describing the Garden of Eden or something fruitful and flourishing. I see this people are going to be prosperous and they're going to flourish. This is going to be very fruitful people. Seven, water shall flow from his buckets and his seed shall be in many waters. Again, just more prosperity. His king shall be higher than Agag and his kingdom shall be exalted. God brings him out of Egypt and he is and, and is for them, for him, like the horns of the wild ox. He shall eat up the nations, his adversaries, and shall break their bones in pieces and pierce them through with his arrows. He crouched he lay down like a lion, and like a lioness, who will rouse him? Who will rouse him up? See if you don't remember this. Blessed are those who bless you, and cursed are those who curse you. Yeah. Genesis 12. So you have the curse because humans sin against God. And five times from Genesis 3 to Genesis 12, you can count five times exactly that God, or that there's the word cursed in the text. And then in Genesis 12, in three short verses, you have God using the word bless five times. So I'm going to cover those curses with a blessing. And this blessing is that I'm choosing Abraham to become a people who will then bring the one who will bless all the nations of the earth. Yeah, the end of the story is blessing, even though it's in the midst of a lot of cursing and people trying to do these nasty things. And so he's now echoing precisely what God said to Abraham. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. And so we're meant to recall that Israel and that God's people as a whole, they are blessed in God. That nothing can come against them. No power, no evil can come against them. And Balak, of course, is furious. And I can just imagine him screaming at Balaam as if he is his donkey failing him now. And Balaam just says, didn't I tell you I have to say what God says? But look at verse 14. And now, behold, I am going to my people. Come, I will let you know what this people will do to your people in the latter days. Okay. So on their way off the mountain, Balaam is telling him. He took up this discourse and said, The oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, the oracle of the man whose eye is open, the oracle of him who hears the words of God and knows the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty falling down with his eyes uncovered. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel, and it shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. Good news, Balak. <laughs> now, I want you to hear what he's saying here. 17 is considered a prophecy about Christ. One who's going to come. I see him, but he's not now. He's not here yet. I behold him, but he's not near. So somewhere off in the distance, a star shall come out of, Jake, uh, uh, out of Jacob and a scepter out of Israel. Well, we know that Christ is the ruler who comes out of Israel. 
And he's the one who came later on. And, and it then says, though, this, it shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. This word crush should bring us back to Genesis again. When the whole world's being cursed because of human sin, God promises that the seed of the woman will bring one who will crush the head of the serpent. And here we have the wording, crushing the forehead of Moab. This is a prophecy of the coming deliverer who will crush once and for all, all forms of curse, all forms of evil. Wow, Balak got not what he was bargaining for. Something totally different. Then Balaam rose and went back to his place, and Balak also went his way. So there's a couple more um, prophecies about the nations. What is really amazing about this passage is you have the scene that we just read about a king and a, a prophet wizard guy working in tandem to try to curse his people down below. <laughs> Meanwhile, we've been reading numbers up to this point, and those people down below <laughs> are complaining and complaining and complaining and complaining. And we, we've, we've seen the passages over and over. Even Miriam and Aaron are complaining against Moses. And even Moses himself is losing his edge by striking a rock, which he was told not to strike. And he yells at the people and calls them rebels. This is, it's getting so ugly that even Moses is getting caught up in the complaints of the people. This is what's going on down there. And up here, they're trying to curse them. Yet God is over all of this as if forming this protective barrier. And while the curses are coming down and everybody who's read the book up to this point knows full well, Israel deserves every curse that's coming to them. These people have been pathetic. And the curses are coming down and God's like, "Eh, I'll deflect that. I'll deflect it again. He keeps deflecting the curses because God realized God is a God of grace. And he's, despite your complaining and despite your rebellions and despite the fact I brought you to the promised land and you had your spies lead all of the people to say, no, we don't want the land God's given us and to tell lies about how you can't get into the land, despite this full-on mutiny and rebellion and the fact that you said that I hate you guys, I'm going to continue to show I don't hate you and I'm going to let these curses go away and I'm going to turn them into blessings on you. Brothers and sisters, God is deflecting curses off of us, the ones we deserve. And he's turning them into blessings. This happens most appropriately because of Jesus, because of his cross. In fact, Galatians chapter 3 says this. This is Galatians 3.10. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. Now, Paul says, It is evident that no one is justified or brought into relationship before God by the law, by works. For the righteous shall live by faith, but the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does, who does them shall live by them. So then he goes on to say, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Whoa. Do you hear what Paul said? Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. 
For it is written, Paul says, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. That's a fancy word for you and me who are not Jewish. So that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Christ became a curse to deliver us from the curse because the scripture said curses everyone who hangs on a tree so that we might have access to the blessings that God gave to Abraham to bless the whole world. We're part of the blessing that God promised would come. And so as he's speaking blessing over these people, we are by faith in Christ grafted into these blessings. And, and the curses can be deflected because Christ himself is the one who's deflecting them. He became the curse on the cross so that there's nothing left for the people of God but blessing. So that you then come to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Perhaps one of the best verses in the Bible. Sorry, men's Bible study. They have a joke every morning. It's the best verse in the Bible. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Ephesians 1.3. Paul begins this letter by saying, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ Jesus with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. In other words, every blessing that God can possibly throw on his people have already been thrown on us in Christ. He's put them all in Christ. And as long as we're in Christ, all of those blessings are made available and already given to us. Wow. This is what Christ does. Christ is the ultimate curse killer. He's the wizard slayer, if you will. He's the one that is making Balaam unable to do his job against the people of Israel. And Christ continues to do the same for us today. But we're not done in numbers. Because chapter 25 has a very interesting twist. So we've learned this. That you can't curse God's people. None of the dark arts, none of the powers of wickedness and the forces of evil can come against the people of God and manipulate them to do their will. They can't do that to us. But there is a way to get the people of God out of the blessing of God. So in chapter 25, while the people of Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. This is what this means. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. Yeah, so um, Balak couldn't get Balaam to curse the people. But we're going to find out later that Balaam gives him the advice to get the people of Israel a different way. You can't manipulate them. But you can beguile them. You can mislead them. You can deceive them. So, they make sure the finest and most beautiful ladies of Moab come over to the camp of Israel and say, Hey, boys, we've got a party over there. We're going to have a merry feast to our God, Baal. Come join us. And the boys are like, Yeah, everyone's complaining in this camp. Let's go. And so they go. And... This is the problem that God sees here is, okay, I've called you to be a set-apart people. I've called you to worship me, the only nation that's doing that, and not to combine yourself with the other gods and the cultures that those gods are promoting. 
A lot of, a lot of immoral culture going on in these nations. And now these women are bringing them over. And this isn't just like, oh, I have bad friends. Ooh, I'm so bad. It's not like that. What happens is they begin to marry. And when you begin to marry, you're joining families together, which means the families are now sharing fellowship and they're now sharing lifestyles. And it means that this nation cannot do anything to this nation because we are married together. So they're allowing the Moabite religion and the Moabite culture to come and affect and influence the Israelite culture and religion. In other words, this is no longer a unique thing. It's doing what every other pagan nation in the world has done. Every other pagan nation has their gods, and then they just say, oh, you have gods too? Bring them on over. We love gods. We lo- the more gods, the merrier. That's how religions did it back then. You have multiple gods, you just have your one favorite. And God is saying, I am not going to be like that. I'm not going to be just one of your many gods, or your favorite among many. I am your only God. I am your only love, your only salvation, your only provider. That's what I've been teaching you through the wilderness for 40 years. I am the only. And yet Israel's now going to, yeah, you know, you're the best. Yes, you're the best. But they have something to offer too. You know, every now and then just change it up. So here's an example of what was going on. Verse 6. Behold, one of the people of Israel came and brought a Midianite woman to his family in the sight of Moses. You can just see the scowl as he's watching this happen. And in, all, in the sight of the whole congregation of the people of Israel, while they were weeping in the entrance of the tent of meeting, when Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, so he's one of the priests, When Phinehas saw it, he rose and left the congregation and took a spear in his hand and went after the man of Israel into the chamber and pierced both of them, the man of Israel and the woman, through her belly. Thus the plague on the people of Israel was stopped. Nevertheless, those who died by the plague were 24,000. That's a lesson. Good news, you can't be cursed. You can't be wrecked by the dark arts bad news. You can curse yourself. You can choose to leave the protection of God and the blessings of God. Now, the Lord praises Phinehas for this. Um, In verse 10, the Lord said to Moses, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the priest, has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel, and that he was jealous with my jealousy among the people, so that I did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy. Therefore say, behold, I give to him my covenant of peace, and it shall be to him and to his descendants after him the covenant of a perpetual priesthood, because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the people of Israel. Or zealous, jealous, zealous. The idea is that he was passionately devoted to his God. The man, uh, the name of the slain man of Israel who was killed was, who was killed with the Midianite woman was Zimri, the son of Salu, chief of a father's house belonging to the Simeonites. And the name of the Midianite, Midianite woman who was killed was Cosby, the daughter of Zer, who was the tribal head of a father's house in Midian. That's important. So this young man, Zimri, assuming he's young, I guess, he belonged to a chief of the tribe of Simeon. In other words, he's an important person. 
Cosby was also an important person, the daughter of a chief. This is not just two young people caught up in their lust or in their love for one another and, and the whole camp is like, ugh, you can't do that. This is way beyond that. This is these two tribal chiefs saying, hey, there's nothing different between us. Let's get together and be best buds. Have my daughter, have my son. This is a contract. The very thing God told them not to do and they go into the promised land. This is what you would call compromise, I guess. When you settle, when you try to say, oh, no, we're not going to stand up for our values here. We're just going to say, yeah, that works too. Let's just go with that. Let's just do whatever it takes to make everyone happy. And this is why God is upset. We have powers trying to, to, to marry to other powers. People in Israel who want more glory and honor. And so they're arranging these marriages. Just like Balaam wanting more glory and honor. There, there's this thread in this text about people wanting more for themselves. Balaam wanting to be known as the greatest cursor in history. And, and having to push on through because the nobles were mighty. This is my reputation on stake. And this young man and the family that's agreed to make this marriage happen. Wanting to be joined. Let's get ahead of everybody else with the Midianites. Let's marry one of the higher up people with one of our higher up kids. It's all just this race for glory and honor and fame. Well, what we see in this is this. In the cursing of, um, when Balaam's trying to curse Israel, we find out that man curses, but God blesses. All right, we see that. He's trying to curse them, God blesses them. And so God continues to bless Israel, but then we see it turn again. God blesses, but man curses. Because these Israelites are bringing the curse upon themselves. They're cursing themselves by their actions. They're saying, yeah, God's blessing's not enough. Let's go and do more. Man curses, but God blesses. Man curses Jesus on the cross. says, you are not worthy of us. We'll put you on the cross. But because of that, God is blessing. You see how that happens? We try to curse, but God turned that into a blessing. And one of the ways that makes God so different than us is his use of power. That Jesus comes, and they don't just say, well, he was some sort of a wizard with this ability to do these amazing things. We call them miracles. Because Jesus came not to manipulate the world to serve himself, but in a sense, he came to change himself in order to serve us. He, he was with God and then became a human. Philippians 2 tells us this. You guys know this one. Philippians 2, 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Another way of translating that very legitimately is to say he did not count equality with God a thing to use. He did not consider his Godhead, his amazing powers and abilities, a thing to manipulate the human race with. My goodness, if you had the power of Jesus, what could you do? But he didn't do that. Instead, 
Instead, he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, and being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Service, servanthood, humility, that is how Jesus uses power, and that's what makes it a miracle, and that's what makes it a blessing and not a curse. Magic in the Bible is all about cursing people, manipulating things to get yourself more powerful. Jesus uses his power to raise up the world around him, to bring a new creation around him. He is blessing while men are cursing. This is his pattern. And now while Balaam was looking for honor and this Zimri fellow of Israel marrying a high-ranking woman of, of the Midianites, while these things are going on, Jesus is not seeking honor and power. He's lowering himself. And yet, because of that, because Jesus is bringing the world up around him, he's using his power to do a different kind of magic, to, to bless people and bring everything up to its original stature. Because of that, God has chosen to, it says, He has highly exalted Jesus and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, even Balaam's. So that at the name of Jesus, not Balaam, not Zimri, not you or me, but at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is what Jesus is the blesser, the one who's come to serve. And he washes his disciples' feet. This, my friends, is true humility. This is the humility of Christ. And if we want to be people who become like Christ, who take on a certain quality of Miracle, common everyday miracle, the kind where we're blessing people and serving them and, and, and we're, and their lives are being reversed from, I feel like I'm just a cursed life and I, and I'm miserable with myself and I'm depressed. And I, instead of living that life, because we're in their lives, that becomes turned and they begin to see that God has good things for them. That God has a plan for them to be used in that way. To be used in that way is to become a servant to people. It's really, it's to do manipulation in the reverse. It's to say, I will bend myself to the will of God. Not bend everybody else and everything else in every circumstance to somehow work to serve my purpose and my will, but instead to bend my purpose and my will to that which is God's. That is the true power of the universe is the humble man and woman who will walk in this world not seeking glory or credit or honor or fame for themselves, not looking to attach themselves to the next person that will make themselves look at and manipulate the situation and that person's weakness in order to build themselves up. People that are not doing that, the people, the men and women and the children of God who live in this world instead using their power to bring other people up, that is what will make the world blessed. That is what will change the curse into a blessing. Humans are cursing all the time. It's the way of the world to curse others so that I feel better, so that I can have a better life. But it's the way of God to say, forget all that. Just bless everyone around you and let the world around you become better. Let the people around you become better. Bless them with God's blessing. You've been given every single amount of blessing in Christ. So don't leave that for the Midianite woman or the other powerful, attractive thing that's going to make you look so wonderful and powerful. Stop making that your goal and start saying, I realize what I have in Christ. Every spiritual blessing given to me. 
And now that is my source of power. I'm going to go in the blessings of Christ and just be myself in friendship with these people. Letting Jesus in me bless the people. That's humility. It's humility. to Stop thinking about how you can use the world. Start thinking about how you can be used by God for the world. Humility is a very um, confusing word. We think it often means go around and say bad things about yourself. And people say that you're a fantastic person. You're like, oh, no, 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 no. Not me, not me. Um, it's not it at all. Humility is about knowing your position. And then staying in that position. I'm going to explain that in just a moment. What I want you to see is Balaam. Why is God changing his mind on Balaam so many times? I heard somebody mutter it. So someone's on key because God wants to use him. Here's what God does with Balaam is he uses Balaam to bless his people. He uses Balaam to bless his people. But he can't use Balaam to bless anybody. He can't use Balaam to bless his people until Balaam is humbled. So what does God do? No, don't go, Balaam. Because God knows what's going to happen next. A mightier entourage is going to come. Okay, they come. Balaam, his heart begins to leap with greed. It lusts for the glory and honor this is going to bring him. (sighs) Forgive me for praying once again, but, you know, you might have noticed this is quite an opportunity. Maybe, just maybe. And God sets him up and says, yeah, yeah, go. Balaam's like, yes. This is, he's dreaming about now his next, you know, I'm going to be the greatest prophet in history. So he's going on the road. Now God's standing against him. Why is God standing against him? Because now he needs to be humiliated, right? God got him to be with the big boys. I'm somebody now. Now he's got to humble him in front of the big boys. <laughs> You're not somebody. So he has the angel divert his donkey to make him look like a fool. Not once, not twice, but three times. His Balaam all up in a knot, beating his donkey. And you could just imagine the nobles snickering at Balaam. Can you believe this guy? Balak is paying how much to bring him? Balaam is humiliated. So much so that when his eyes are open and he sees the angel of the Lord, this is the final act of humiliation. He falls on the ground, it said. He is now in awe of the true king of kings and lord of lords, the true God. God is not now somebody he's going to use to curse his people. God is now somebody whom he's submitting himself under and in reverence of. He has been changed. He's bending his will toward the will of God. This is a miracle. The magic worker is now miracled. I like that. And so when he speaks, he can now speak blessing. We will never be the blessing God wants us to be on earth until we stop trying to hang out with the big boys and do whatever it takes to be a big boy. You know, partnering ourselves with the people we're not supposed to. We will never be the people to bless the world until we learn humility. 
And look, we may have been on a path. A path of, I'm so great. A path of success. Just watch. God might do something, not because you're necessarily wrong, but do something to show you you're not who you think you are. You'll be humbled. You'll be broken. You'll be shown that you have your limitations. Balaam learned it. He could bless the people. We will learn it so that we can bless the world. So humility, the one that Israel needed to know, the one that we should know. Humility, again, is not just this false assumption about yourself. Humility is knowing your position. So what this means is, humility is not seeing myself in a certain way. Oh, I'm the lowest of the low. I'm just a nobody. That's looking at yourself, which is not humility. Mrs. Huffman, you've been a wonderful principal at Lake Road Christian School. Oh, no, no, no. I have so many failures. I have not done one thing for the school. No, no, really. The way you changed that, and we saw these more people coming to school. And then, no, 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 no. That was somebody. And she keeps on going, and you start giving her more reasons she did. What's she doing? Inadvertently fishing for compliments. Now, she doesn't do that. She doesn't. But that's an example of, of thinking humility is all about, oh, I'm not anybody Well, you're actually just focusing on yourself, and it's bringing more attention to yourself. It's knowing your position by changing your perspective about God. So the position isn't focusing on, who am I? The the focus is a position on, is I can't talk. The focus is your position in God. Who is God? The greater we see God, the more humility that happens in us. And the greater that we see God, the more we can be honest about who we are. Completely honest about who we are. What if Mrs. Huffman decided, well, I'm not a very good person at anything. I might as well just not go up on the mountain and not help a Christian school and not bring blessing to many families and people because I'm just a humble person. Uh, That would have been a mistake. Blessings that she knew who God was. And she can be who she is. And this goes for all of us. Because we know who God is. And when people say, you did that really well, you say, isn't God amazing? You don't have to make, stop looking at me. No, no. I know. I know. God is great to use all of us in our certain capacities. So, you know, God's been good bringing Mrs. Huffman up to the school. She can say, thank you. I appreciate the compliment. He is good. Humility is knowing your position. It's knowing your position in God, that he is God and you're not. We become proud when we begin to reverse that and we don't put God in his right place. He's kind of equal to us or they're at our beck and call to give us the vending machine, God, to give us what I want or even beneath us. No, just know your position. Second, humility is stay in your position. And this is the biggest one when it comes to the dark arts because remember, they cannot curse you. They cannot Satan, his minions, the curses, the evil, it cannot manipulate you. But what they can do is draw you into a place you don't belong. Draw you into a place of frustration, into a place of anger, into a place of pride. That is where our danger is. And so humility is knowing our place, but then staying in our place. You might notice this picture on the screen that's been up there all night. Um, If you see a cross, you're supposed to. 
This is one of the theories about how the camp looked. We saw it in Numbers earlier as we read how the how the people positioned themselves by tribe around the tabernacle. So yes, they do position themselves like that. Three on the north, south, east, and west. Three on each of those sides. So the twelve are there. Um, the guess is, well, do they just kind of like blob around? Like, well, we're kind of in the northern part and it merges into the eastern part or whatever. Or were they uniquely and straight and orderly shaped like that? Um, we don't know for sure. Of course, we don't have a photograph. But the belief is that that's how it looked when they arranged themselves. And so you can see Balaam as he's standing at the top of the mountain trying to curse them. What's he looking at? He's looking at a people who are protected by the cross of Christ, the one who became a curse for us to bless the world. He's looking at at the very heart of that, the tabernacle where animals are sacrificed and blood was spilt for the forgiveness of sins. This is why we need to stay in position. As long as Israel was there, they were a-okay. But as soon as they went to visit the Midianite parties or the Midianite worship services or the Midianite women, they were no longer walking in the cross. And what pulls us out of that position? The lack of humility. Humility says, I need Jesus. I need the cross. I need God. But pride says, yeah, but if I go over there, I could become or I can accomplish or people will see me as. And so we try to leave our position in order to raise our own position. And that's, that's the lesson here. Is our defense against the dark arts is humility. You cannot be touched if you know your position and stay there. And so as we go to communion, friends, this is it. This is the communion that says, this is where you're supposed to be. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Every single one because of the cross given to you and I. We take communion to remember this is my position. This is my place. It is serving God. It's bending my will to his will. It's saying this is where I need to be. Everything you need is here. Everything you need is walking with Christ in humility.